0: you experience
1: back with another episode of the anarchist experience episode 363 aka year eight week eight coming at you this week as always i am your host mr richie rich along with
0: mc and
1: KS. and since this is your regularly scheduled uh live show on clubhouse join us there uh around 4 p.m eastern time which we sprung forward this past week and that caught me off guard Like my alarm went off Sunday morning. I was like, why do I feel so tired? And I didn't realize it until like three hours later that the clocks had changed. So I still hate that stupid thing. (laughs) Um, But still (laughs) around 4 p.m. Eastern time. uh, If you'd like to listen to the live show and participate in the club, the club is the anarchist experience, or you can at me at riches for rich, R I C H E S the number four R I C H uh, to get the little button poking. When I do this, when I start the thing and we can go live and you can raise your hand and participate in that. Uh, That being said, um, I want to say what is going on with you guys this week because that's what I usually say. But I also, we were talking before the show, uh, KS, and you were talking about the the Russian oligarchs, those billionaires. And I said, I don't even know what an oligarch is. So I looked it up and Mm. you, well, you looked it up. Um, So you want to fill me in on air and anyone else who's listening who like doesn't, who may not understand the terminology or how it's being used in the media presently.
2: And just uh in one sidelight uh, i saw I read that the Congress or that the House passed a bill to uh, to stop the daylight savings time shift beginning in i think uh, fall of two thousand and twenty three okay, so, and then you won't have to worry about that again
1: okay, well, okay, so let's stop there again then, because they're doing it wrong they're trying to make daylight they're trying to make daylight savings time permanent um uh, mm-hmm.
0: As opposed oh no. to, what? <laughs> I said, oh, no.
2: <laughs>
1: but it's wrong. Standard, t- standard time is where your, your, like, naturally occurring time zone is. And I, I go through this spiel, like, every year. Now, if you want to argue, like, the arbitrary starting point from which this happens, I will hear an argument, right? But we said, UTC, Greenwich Mean Time, whatever you want to do, like that's 0.0 on the globe. And then they divided the globe up into like 24 fucking segments. And they said, okay, each segment is an hour, right? Like that's, that's how it was done. So you don't get to like be permanently the same time as the segment to your left on the map, right? Or however, or the right, whatever, right? Like you're, you're in the time zone you're in because That's how it works. So to make daylight savings time permanent is dumb because then you're permanently in the wrong fucking time zone. (laughs) Just make standard time permanent, stay in the time zone that you're in, and then guess what? Let businesses adjust operating hours at their leisure, right? Like a shop can open at eight in the morning instead of nine for six months out of the year. That's okay, right? and a shop that doesn't want to open an hour earlier for six months out of the year can just not change the operating hours on the sign out front. So there you go. And also there was a, I'm, I'm trying to find the headline as we speak here because um, that whole like daylight savings time thing was so, was so screwed up that uh, here's a headline that I shared uh, for show prep for free talk live. Cause I'm not going to be on tomorrow night. Everyone was surprised by the Senate passing permanent daylight savings time, especially the senators. Like, did you guys see that headline? (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't. Okay. So apparently no one expected it to pass because they, you know, someone like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to send out the thing where we're going to, you know, we're going to try to pass this permanent daylight savings time thing. And we're going to call for like the unanimous vote and someone's going to object. Right. And the guy that was supposed to like fly in to object had his plane delayed
2: uh, because of just shifting daylight saving? No, no, no.
1: His plane oh, was okay. just delayed, but that's not the kicker. They held off the hearing so that he could get there and object, and then he <laughs> got there and didn't object. He forgot to object. <laughs> he forgot. So they passed this thing, and everyone went, "What?" Like <laughs> <laughs> someone dropped the ball, and then other senator officers were like complaining, like hey, you guys are supposed to, like, give us a fucking heads up on this so we can object. And, like, yeah, we did. And then, the, you know, Tom was supposed to object, and he, like, showed up and didn't object. So, like, you, you were notified, and oops. So <laughs> the fact that they passed it is also ridiculous because it wasn't even supposed to happen.
2: They could take another vote and undo it.
1: Uh, a yeah, probably. Okay, whatever. But that's, it's so stupid. Oh, the whole situation is stupid all the way around. Yeah. How these how these assholes get to vote themselves a 21% pay raise is beyond me.
0: <laughs> no, that like, was an accident, too.
2: Was, that, was Yeah, really? the person who, prote- <laughs> who protested was um, hog-tied <laughs> <laughs> and bound and gagged in the closet.
1: Rand Paul wasn't there that day to say, no, guys. We, I, I thought he was <laughs> the, ch- the champion of all this stuff, right? Does He does the whole, like, you know, the year-end review on government waste. Like, how about, how about your pay raise, dickhead? You know, whatever. I'm going fire up. All right, oligarchs. Go, Ken.
2: Chaos. Hmm. A, a Russian billionaire is called an oligarch. And the term originated around 1991 after the fall of the Soviet Union and privatization uh, was taking place. And there was, a, of course, a lot of political shenanigans to determine who would get control of the assets. Okay. And uh, so political control was considered to be, well, I don't know, the term itself uh, uh, comes from that. But, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I don't even know the origin of the word. Is this one of those things where Americans just don't have Russia. a word
1: for it? Right. The, the problem with the mm. French people is they don't have a word for entrepreneur, right?
2: <laughs>
1: like, no, that's that's their word, bro. Like I, that's the thing they they say it, and I understand what it means in context, right? Like rich, we, we
2: might say crony capitalist in okay in, here, which would be the same kind of thing, yeah,
1: right. Contextually, the same. So, mm-hmm. okay, fair. So there's Russian oligarchs, as if as if we if we didn't apply if we if we in the United States applied those terms to uh, most of the, the vast majority of billionaires in the United States they would also be oligarchs, right? Right. Like under under the current system, it's prohibitively difficult, if not impossible, to garner that level of wealth by market means only. Is that fair?
2: Sure. And I think that you could say currying favor with government uh, to get, say, military contracts or government contracts or... Uh, you'd have to, perhaps even I would I would put in that category patents and licenses although people might say that's not you don't get a patent because of the privilege you have with politicians but because you were the first to file for some monopoly privilege
1: oh it's but, still government protection right yeah
2: it is uh-huh. or you could say um, Elon Musk benefited by tax subsidies to electric vehicles. So there was a, a privilege that it's that benefited him enormously, I guess.
1: Yep. Bill Gates, Bezos, the Apple people, same idea?
2: Yeah, military contracts. Uh now Bezos of course has a, a special arrangement with the post office for delivery of all of his stuff. And I don't know uh how accessible it is to all of his competitors. I suppose that it that it is, but I just don't know enough about it.
1: Okay. And also the servers? Like the, the CIA runs all their stuff on AWS, Amazon Web Service, Web Servers. Yeah, that's
2: true. Uh, that's right.
1: So there's your government contracts right there. Allows you to make billions. Um, so if that's the understanding, right, like why do I care about these Russian oligarchs in the news? Right. Like I don't want to support them. I don't want to back them. I don't want to say that I'm I'm OK with it because obviously we're all against that cronyism. Uh, but it's it seems like they're made out to be much more vile and repulsive and reprehensible uh, than the average American billionaire for basically the same practice.
2: Yeah, the term oligarch has this real negative connotation. It sounds like uh, an ogre in uh, you know in a castle who's got some um, you know he's he's kind of a monster just uh, by his his label and his title, you know, he's, and, and there may be plenty of guys that, <laughs> that description fits, but it's a, a broad sweeping one, of course.
0: I think there's another way to look at the term oligarch, and it's probably that a lot of them uh, benefit from ripping off the people in Russia, but then also hold all their money in, in London. <laughs> okay. So they're, and, and and I think that happens a lot in uh China too, where well they, they don't want them to do that, but you know, people do that anyway.
1: Okay, qualify uh, that because I think we would also make the argument that American billionaires here, um, despite the fact that they're cronies to the state, they still benefit consumers because consumers still have to choose to buy their products. But you're saying Russian oligarchs are ripping off the Russian people somehow.
0: Um <clears throat> i assume you know, similar to the people in the u s that you know tax, tax incentives and uh <clears throat> uh positions uh in high places because of uh family ties and stuff okay. like that so i right, one not, one th- oh yeah i, I assume I, I assume in russia uh, an oligarch means not by competence but uh s- someone who's generally a bad person that is put in because they're they're good at keeping people in line <laughs> okay Okay, you couldn't
2: couldn't uh, an example of this be um, um, owners of sports teams in the United States? I mean, isn't the the game of football or basketball the national leagues uh, privileged to some exemption from antitrust rules, which allows them to fix prices and and set their rules? Um, they have enormous Advantages with building billion-dollar stadiums in in their cities, so those things come at taxpayers' expense. There isn't really an open and competitive market for uh, of choice, but yet there is a a choice. the 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 fans don't have to attend the game, right? uh, But they do have to pay for their stadiums through taxpayers' uh, funding. In a lot of most cases,
1: okay. So that's the sort of ripping off that you think MC is referring to. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair. So what? One of the things that bothered me again prior to learning this new terminology um, was I. I'm again. I'm. I have a problem with the cronyism. I don't have a problem with the wealth. So when I read in the news that like Russian billionaire escapes on his like billion dollar private yacht and then gets the yacht confiscated in like Italy or Denmark or wherever they're stealing Russian billionaire yachts right I go like well that's that's not cool either bro like right because even even if they had gotten that wealth through their political influence they already made the decision like it's too dangerous here I'm leaving and then they get to their destination or whatever and that's where they're accosted again, right? Like I read an article, one, I don't remember what's, what country, um, but Russian billionaire unable to leave in his private yacht because no one will sell him fuel, which <laughs> I'll call that a market mechanism, but it, so better than, better than, you know, outright confiscating it. Like Russian oligarch has its yacht confiscated by the state, right? By a different state, right? Not even, not even the state that he paid his tribute to, like he he picked his gang. He said, "Like I'm I'm siding with Russia because I'm gonna because you know Putin's gonna make me a billionaire," and then whoops, Putin's kind of off the rocker. Let's get out of here while we, while it's still safe, and then runs into you know the rival gang, and they go like, "Ha, taking your yacht."
2: Well, this is <clears throat> most obvious from Russia, but I think a much bigger example, but is but is much more invisible less talked about is from China and it's interesting that the very very vastly wealthy uh, corrupt political leaders and their princes their their princelings uh, sons and daughters escape the country with lots and lots of wealth Um, they pick out countries that that protect them like England or the United States and with this action now it could be that they'll might they might change their behavior in the future you know, they might say, "Well, okay, those aren't safe. Maybe we'll try and find somewhere else." But I don't know where else they can find that's safer than England and the United States for parking uh, the wealth of oligarchs or king. Um, they they call them princelings in uh, in China. Okay, princeling sounds so much nicer than oligarch, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> Different terminology for the same concept. Labels they are what they are. Yeah, I mean, I if, if I was one of those oligarchs who had my yacht stolen, right? I would, I would return to Russia, um, with like vengeance on my mind, right? Like once, once the Ukraine situation is taken over, can we go get my yacht back? Like all this political influence, let's, let's go really show them who's boss kind of a thing. You're a billionaire. You can raise an army or a small mercenary fleet to take down, you know, some small country perhaps
2: that's a good point they they could be doing an awful lot they're, they're really good at operating in the in the underworld the, the black market and they could be plotting all sorts of things with nefarious or mischievous uh uh consequences i mean assassinations and and um disruptions of the market and so on yeah I, yeah
1: the minute you steal my yacht that's where my mind's gonna go because i could afford it then right like is that just me do I not have I a right know. to get my yacht back by any means necessary?
2: well yeah, maybe they also so? feel well, easy come, easy go. You know, I mean, they, I mean, you know, if you if you're a billionaire and you lose a hundred million dollars here and there, I mean, that he, he gained it last week and he lost it this week. Maybe, maybe they're not so bothered by it because it's, it's just okay. playing the game.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, tuck tail back to Russia and just buy a new yacht. Is that what you're saying?
2: Make it a bigger well, maybe, one. Maybe to Malta or Cyprus. Okay. You know, maybe not back to Russia.
1: All right. I'd go, instead of a yacht, I'd go get a battleship. That's all I'm
0: saying. <laughs> Build me a battleship. It is, it is kind of funny that, that a lot of these oligarchs had a lot of properties and stuff in, in London and probably the U.S. and other places. And, and now all those, pe- all those places are turning on them. So, uh, yeah. Anyway. That's still go a weird on. thing,
1: though again, you know, um, what, one of the things I, I don't know when I, if I mentioned it here last week in time or not, um, or if I thought about it after the fact, cause I, I mentioned it at dinner, um, Sunday night before we did free talk live. I was like, I wonder how many people in Russia, like we're, you know, we're talking about just the average everyday Russian citizens at this point, right? They're like, well, don't be mean to your Russian friends or Russian people you come across because they're not their government right they don't they don't control what putin is doing um even when the when covid started right like please don't go out and punch asian people in the face like they didn't that wasn't their thing um so i'm sitting there and if i brought if i brought it up here fantastic if not here it is now i was like i wonder how many of those like russian citizens are like i don't support putin's war but i do support the russian troops <laughs> Right, like I want to put that on a T-shirt. Like I don't support Russia's war, but I do support Russia's troops.
2: You mean support their troops to uh, come home?
1: Sure, whatever. Yeah, I don't care. Sure, I'm just, sure. I'm just trying to think of like if, you know the the mentality of the average Russian citizen at this point.
0: Well, the, right. the mentality of the average uh, U.S. citizen is is pretty. Uh, Insane. So, <laughs> well, yeah, because I average, support the troops. It's like, well, what do you want for them? <laughs> do you want them? Do you support them invading Iraq or not? Right. So that that's the thing. So now, put put it
1: in context of if you were a yes. Russian citizen, you'd probably yeah. you'd probably have a similar mentality. Like, I those mean, thank are you your for troops. your
2: service and uh, for bringing freedom to Russia by attacking Ukraine
1: or whatever. Yeah. However the however they're spinning it, right? Like I was. Uh, I was a little miffed for a little while because I, one of the sources that I, uh, I get my news from is RT, Russia Today. And I was like, son of a bitch, they're going to, they're going to block that content. Right. And it's, it's not that I believe everything printed in Russia Today, but it is an insight into, you know, the, the propaganda, um, that you get from that side. So earlier this week, I was like, you know, going through my headlines and there was a, um, there was a headline that said, you know, um, Russian ruble on the rise, right? You know, and stabilizes against the dollar because after all the um, sanctions and whatnot, the, the ruble fell. Well, if you look at the chart, it is on the rise, right? Like tech, factually, technically correct. Um, but if you look at the chart a little bit further back, it has not, rised, it has not risen to the level that it was previous uh, to the invasion, Right. So it's still valued less, but it's, it's, you know, it's rising up from the, the valley uh, of that initial downfall. So it's one of those things where I like, I like, I like being able to get the propaganda uh, from both sides or from all sides and then have the ability to sift through it and figure out what is truth versus, oh, this is how they're spinning it, right, versus how the U.S., the Ukraine, or the BBC or whatever is spinning it. And so I was like, man, they're, gonna, they're, they're shutting it down. They're blocking it. Right? Even DuckDuckGo, fuckers at DuckDuckGo were like, oh, we're going to downvote Russian Russian disinformation or misinformation. It's like, dude, just give me the results, right? Like, just give me the – I'm a big boy. I put in my big boy pants on the morning. Just give me the information and let me decide what I believe to be fake, what I believe to be true, and what I can verify with you know facts from other sources. But no, they get Russian, you know, Russians get the propaganda. U.S. gets their propaganda. And for whatever reason, that leads the average Russians and average Americans to hate each other for whatever reason. And people are okay with that. It's, it's just bizarre to me. Any thoughts on that? On the propaganda? Propaganda. Headlines? we just jumping right in? Moving sure. along? Sure. Mm-hmm. Moving along. Headlines. Headline, the cognitive bias behind anti-price gouging laws. Uh, headline, lowest income taxpayers are the most likely to be audited. Uh, headline, the CEO. Uh, that's about Biden and the presidency, if because it's uh, not a very descriptive headline. Uh, headline, Florida company shows California how to build a railroad with its bright line rail system. Uh, headline, transhumanism and egoism. Headline, the TSA's mask mandate is just as logical as all its other arbitrary impositions. Headline, As oh, here we go. As Americans go broke paying for gas, Congress quietly increased pay by a whopping 21%. A Headline, police repeatedly question mom of six who let kids pick up litter outside. A headline, <laughs> the cashless life won't be worth living. Headline, Americans need a cola, not a Coke, C-O-L-A. And finally, headline, must libertarians care about more than just the state? Any of those jump out at you? Chaos?
2: No, Oh, whatever. I mean, they're all interesting. I mean, for, uh, as an economist, I always like the price gouging ones, but that's a, an old story. Not, not any relevant, particularly new. Um, the second one you mentioned also was, what was that one?
1: Lowest income taxpayers are most likely to be audited?
2: Oh yeah, that's an old story too. I mean, but, but chronic, because they're so easy to target and can't fight back, and they fill the quotas of the IRS agencies. All but right. uh, no, those aren't particularly interesting to the general public. So, you no, know, pick out whatever you like. I mean, they're all they're all pregnant with thought.
1: All right. Well, you're the, you're the Economist and the Libertarian. So, must Libertarians care oh. about more than the state?
2: Yeah. What do they mean? That's uh, what do they mean? Uh, the the, the liber- yeah.
1: The tension between two libertarianisms in the big tent. It's rocky times for the conservative-libertarian partnership that characterized American right-of-center politics in the second half of the 20th century. Considerable attention has recently been paid to the rise of post-liberalism, the right-wing populists, nationalists, and Catholic integralists who fully embrace muscular government as a force for good as they define it. But there's little evidence as yet that most conservatives share such an affinity for big government. The simpler explanation is more banal. Often, when conservatives reject libertarianism, it's because of the cultural associations the word has for them. Conservatives, after all, are much more likely than other ideological demographics to believe in God and say faith is an important part of their lives. To feel unapologetically proud of American greatness and generally to hold views regarding personal morality that might describe as socially conservative. Of course, they would be reluctant to throw in with that group, famed in large part for his uh, licentiousness, hostility to religion, and paucity of patriotic zeal. But what if those associations are mistaken? If libertarianism, properly understood, has no cultural commitments, shouldn't that open up room to parley? Such a hope seems to have animated Murray Rothbard when he wrote in 1981 that libertarianism is strictly a political philosophy confined to what the use of violence should be in social life. As such, he added, it is not equipped to take one position or another on personal morality or virtue. How convenient it would be for this Catholic libertarian as much as anyone if that were the end of that. But the big tent of libertarianism clearly houses many adherents whose self-understanding goes quite a bit further than Rothbard's. In fact, one useful way to divide and corral the unruly menagerie under one great circus pavilion is to ask the question Rothbard begs. Is individual liberty merely the highest political principle, the thing for which government exists, or is it a philosophical north star by which to direct all aspects of our lives? Let us call the two groups political libertarians and comprehensive libertarians. What of lifestyle libertarians who think we should maximize liberty in our private lives, but say the state may prioritize other goods, equality, say, or security ahead of freedom? I submit that these are not libertarians at all. They're libertines. Libertarianism requires a commitment at minimum to prioritizing liberty in the governmental sphere. In a thought-provoking book, uh, thought-provoking 2015 book, the McGill University political theorist Jacob T. Levy differentiated between two tendencies in the liberal tradition. Pluralism places a high value on individual's freedom to form associations that will then shape and even constrain their lives in diverse ways. Rationalism, meanwhile, is concerned with the protection of individual freedom even when private or voluntary institutions threaten it. John Stuart Mill could be the patron saint of rationalist liberalism. His On liberty, Levy wrote, aims to defend individuality, not merely, not even primarily, formal freedom from state regulation. Liberals of the Millian type are not quite cotemorous with the group I'm calling comprehensive libertarians. Levy acknowledges that rationalists often support the existence of a powerful central state, Equipped with authority to step in and rescue individuals from tyrannies visited by religious organizations, patriarchal family structures, and other private institutions. Expansive support for government interference in private life may be liberal in this sense, but it isn't very libertarian. Still, there is significant overlap between Levy's rationalist and comprehensive libertarians. It's not uncommon in libertarian circles to hear that, although a private entity has every legal right to behave in a certain manner, we have an obligation to use our non-governmental powers to oppose it. For comprehensive libertarians, it's not enough for the state to allow drugs or gay marriage or music with explicit lyrics— We should do what we can to ensure that new forms of creative expression and experiments in living are accepted, even celebrated, at a cultural level. If traditional manners and customs and institutions are in the way, in this view, our job is to stand against them, just as we stand against the government when it infringes on people's liberty. Violence and the threat of violence are hard infringements on freedom, but culture can limit people's freedom in softer ways, and comprehensive libertarians think that should matter to us too. From this perspective, lifestyle freedom is just as much a component of libertarianism as is political freedom. That makes comprehensive libertarianism a thick worldview, as laid out in a much-debated 2008 blog post by the philosopher Charles W. Johnson. Should libertarianism be seen as a thin commitment, Johnson asked, which can be happily joined to absolutely any set of values and projects, so long as it is peaceful, or is it better to treat it as one strand among others in a thick bundle of intertwined social commitments? A thick libertarian might think, for instance, that libertarians should also be feminists out of desire to free people from the patriarchy. <laughs> Yet comprehensive libertarianism and thick libertarianism are not quite synonymous either. The first is an example of the second, but it isn't alone. Plenty of libertarians see their political worldview as embedded in a larger moral philosophy than their fellow libertarians ought to share, but they don't all agree about what that comprehensive philosophy is. Consider virtue libertarianism, libertarianism, which recognizes a duty to respect our own moral nature and to promote its development in others in proportion to the responsibility we have for them. According to a 2016 essay by the political scientists William Ruger and Jason Sorens, in some cases this means providing approbation and disapproval of certain choices to foster a culture consistent with human flourishing and a free society. Clearly, comprehensive libertarians and virtue libertarians both have worldviews in which political and non-political commitments are bundled together. Taken as a whole, those bundles are at odds. While members of the two camps will agree that prostitution should be decriminalized, say, they may disagree about its moral valence. with one side viewing sex work as liberating and thus normalizing or even applauding and the other side viewing it as degrading and thus worth lamenting or even working to end through non-coercive means. Political libertarians would seem to encompass Johnson's thin libertarianism, but it may coincide with some fairly thick worldviews. A political libertarian can believe, as I do, that a virtuous society is important, but political libertarians see our opinion about how the non-governmental sphere of life should be ordered as falling outside the scope of libertarianism per se, which for us As for Rothbard is, strictly a political philosophy about what the use of violence should be in social life. Someone who shares all of my political commitments but dissents from my broader moral outlook is no less a libertarian for it. There is at least a loose consensus among libertarians about the proper role of the state. Not so when you move beyond government policy and start asking what it means to build a good society or to live a good life. For comprehensive libertarians, as we've seen, a good society is one in which people are maximally free to be who they want to be, pursuing the good life according to whatever that means to them. Comprehensive libertarians are reflexively opposed to both hard and soft infringements on liberty. The only limit, though it is a crucial one, is that someone's pursuit of happiness can't forcibly interfere with anyone else's. Kinky sex? Groovy, if that's what you're into. Rape or human trafficking? Of course not you understand libertarianism at all political liberty liberta- uh political libertarians don't have this sort of straightforward heuristic to fall back on on any given question in the non-governmental domain we must see liberty as one of many competing values it won't always be the most important faced with decisions that have nothing to do with the use of coercion how to structure a business relationship which causes our community organiza- organizations to support whether to go along to get along with our neighbors Freedom gives us a choice, but it doesn't help us choose. To be sure, greater cultural freedom can be a wonderful thing. None of us, regardless of our politics, should want to live in a society in which religious, ethnic, or sexual minorities are denigrated or excluded. In this, we can learn from our comprehensive libertarian friends not to undervalue social advances that allow more people to live full lives of dignity. The fact that women today can choose among a far wider array of professional opportunities than we once had access to makes this a freer society, and also a better one. At the same time, political libertarians are on strong footing when we insist that other goods must sometimes take precedence. It is often noble to sacrifice some aspect of your freedom for your family, country, or religion. Yet a strict comprehensive libertarianism would leave no space to appreciate the triumph of loyalty or honesty or bravery or humility or piety or generosity over liberty. Nor does comprehensive libertarianism grapple with the reality that people can, and frequently do, exercise liberty in ways that are immoral and or destructive. Not every free choice is a good choice. Even when the harm from someone's actions are wholly internalized, they still may be tragic. A life is a terrible thing to waste. And don't kid yourself. Bad choices are rarely rarely fully internalized. An absentee father's actions affects his kids, and a culture that is affirming towards men who abandon their families will end up with more of them. The men are arguably freer, but is the society better off? As good libertarians, we know better than to ask the state to solve these sorts of problems, but we don't have to pretend they aren't real. To say that a good society just is a free society, and a good life is a free life, is to miss all of that. Greater freedom from force and fraud is always a positive thing. Greater freedom from cultural constraints may not be. For questions in the non-governmental sphere, comprehensive libertarians have a default answer. Political libertarians have a parable about a fence. In 1929, the English Catholic G.K. Chesterton asked his readers to imagine a fence or gate erected across a road. He then described two reformers. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says... I don't see the use of this, let us clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, If you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then, when you can come back and tell me that you do say the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. This story has given aid and comfort to many arrogant conservatives in possession of exactly half the point. It's true that its counsel respect for tradition, for the wisdom, dearly bought of those who came before us, Manners and customs and institutions can be obstacles to the cultural liberalization that comprehensive libertarians desire. They also may reflect lessons learned through trial and error, evolve solutions to genuine problems. If we smash any aspect of the culture that isn't fully committed to the project of maximizing lifestyle experimentation, we are meddling in something we do not understand. Religion, arguably, is the archetype of soft infringement on personal freedom. Should we favor a cultural a culture devoid of religious faith and fervor? Or is it possible that hostility to religion draws people away from a deep source of meaning and belonging in their lives, producing alienation, deaths of despair, and a toxic politics in which people desperate for spiritual succor invest their identities in cult-like movements and embrace power-hungry leaders who, assures, who assure them they're on the right side of a battle with apocalyptic stakes? We should care about such questions. Nevertheless, the moral of Chesterton's parable is not that tradition is sacrosanct. The lesson is to use our brains. Go away and think. He's telling us to reduce our own ignorance, especially by looking to the past, at which point we may reasonably conclude that the fence was ill-considered in the first place, or that it once served a purpose that it no longer obtains, or that the problem still exists, but there are better ways to address it, or that the potential upside to clearing its way Clearing the way is worth the calculated risk. We are not slaves to those who came before. We need not defer to the way things have always been done. Chesterton is calling us to exercise prudence. The charioteer of the virtues, that is, he's calling us to use practical reason to discern the best best path forward, ends as well as means, in light of the particular circumstances. Some fences continue to serve valuable purposes, Others, like the one informally barred generations of women from most careers, deserve to come down. Comprehensive libertarians commit themselves to a blanket-fence-removal policy. Political libertarians leave open the possibility of a more prudent approach. Rothbard's definition of libertarian as strictly a political philosophy appeared in a 1981 essay challenged the late National Review literary editor Frank S. Meyer, whose ideas, nearly a decade after his death, continue to have outsized influence on over the blossoming conservative intellectual scene. Meyer's position was that conservatives in America should commit themselves to two non-negotiable pillars. First, the government exists only to protect life, liberty, and property, nothing more. Second, that people exist to pursue rich and upright lives, traditionally understood, a task made easier when the state does its job well. Against Meyer's will, the philosophical orientation took on the subsequent fusionism, because of the way it joined an emphasis on freedom in the governmental realm with an emphasis on virtue in the non-governmental realm. Rothbard was inhabited. At the heart of this dispute between the traditionalists and the libertarians is the question of freedom and virtue. Should virtuous actions, however we define it, be compelled, or should it be left up to the free and voluntary choice of the individual, he wrote. Frank Meyer was on this crucial, crucial issue squarely in the libertarian camp. Thus, Rothbard concluded that the fusionist position is simply the libertarian position, that Frank Myers was not a fusionist, but quite simply a trenchant individualist and libertarian, and that fusionism is no third way, but simply libertarianism. This surely isn't right. While Myers' first pillar is practically indistinguishable from political libertarianism, fusionism is distinguished from political libertarianism by the addition of the second non-negotiable pillar, the word fusionist carry extra information, identifying a subset of political libertarians with a particular commitment to virtue and a Chestertonian respect for fences in the private sphere. It's well and good to point out that there's a space for fusionists of Myers kind under the libertarian big top. I too want my small government conservative friends to know they have a place in libertarian movement if they should want it, particularly a movement conservati- conservatism continues its frightening post-liberal drift. But Rothbard seems to think he can use smoke and mirrors to erase comprehensive libertarians from sight, writing, for example, that only an imbecile could ever hold that freedom is the highest or indeed the only principle or end of life. This claim, which would come as a surprise to any number of my associates, offers a poignant reminder of why Rothbard is, remembered as many libertarians' least favorite libertarian. In truth, there are a variety of libertarianisms, for better or worse, are big taint, has always contained a messy con- 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 contributors of views, so walk the stalls and see what appeals you. Welcome to the show. End of the article.
0: Okay, wow, that was a little bit long, but uh, <laughs> following up with the with with uh, the end of that. Um. Oh my gosh, it, I had so much things going through my mind. I kind of forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> um, chaos. Do you have?
2: Yeah, the thought that came to my mind as, as you were going through that is that he just, you know, the word libertarian to me is just simply the non aggression principle. But then he's using it, and as we all do, in a much broader way, oh, you know, a libertarian attitude towards things. You know, like, um, yes, this guy has a right not to uh, rent his apartment to a gay person or a woman or someone that he doesn't like, so a different religion. Yes, he has a right to, um, but then for nice, general, tolerant behavior, you say, well, but he, but he should be open to that. He should be tolerant of others. And that's what I think of as the difference between the non-aggression principle and what Mark Victor has been pushing, the live and let live philosophy and attitude. Uh, it's just a, a confusion of that word, using it in both contexts. I think maybe it's best not to use the same word libertarian in all, in all those situations.
0: I, I was thinking about the, the Rothbardian uh, idea that uh, he, he said um, libertarian isn't the most important principle in the world. Is that – that's what you said, right? Is that, Am I saying that right? Uh, at the, I can't at remember end, the quote. At the end yeah, of the article? Yeah, at the end. Yeah, um, or close to the end. Only an imbecile
1: so, could ever hold that freedom is the highest or indeed the only principle or end of life.
0: Right, and so um, – and, and I think that's that's not so obvious, depending on what situation you're currently in. Um, once we get to a place where we have an abundance of freedom, then it doesn't become such a important principle because then it's, you have it. <laughs> then you don't have to. Then you can do uh, things that are more important than looking for more freedom. Uh, however, when you get to a point where uh, the government claims to have uh, the responsibility to do everything for everybody, uh, then they also have the right to take everything from everybody so that they can provide the things to everybody. And, and there, and that's when you get to the point where, well, I have nothing to do, but fight for freedom, because, you know, I'm I'm not going to go, uh, feed the homeless when the homeless can just, you know, go to the government and say, give me food. And the government's going to come to me and take it from me,
2: you know? (laughs) So, yeah, that's excellently put. I think that it's um, a necessary condition to have a non-aggression principle, but it's not sufficient. There are other things in life that um, make it rich and, and valuable, but it's an essential starting point.
1: Yes. So in the context of this article, um, I would consider myself to be the thin libertarian, right? The, the non-aggression mm-hmm. principle... Political philosophy, whatever you want to call it, I've used the term. What's that?
0: (laughs) And then everything else, uh, you do what you want.
1: (laughs) Well, and and so several years ago, the term like brutalist became a thing. Like Mm liberty, like um, I think it was Jeffrey Tucker who mentioned it at one point. You know, the, the the brutal libertarians, and he meant it. He he implied it to be a derogatory term, right? It is. But it's not. Because I, I'll accept that label too, because it's the bare minimum of what libertarians should be. Right. He was describing the thin libertarians who did not care about anything other than the non aggression principle. Right. You know, the, the brutalist architecture, the bare minimum, the, the the only function, no no beauty, no form, no grace. Right. But that to me, that's all that term that connotation is supposed to mean. Right, The non-aggression principle, nothing more, in my opinion. And so I've always said, like, the, the people who want to solve social problems who also consider themselves to be libertarians, I go, great. You're a libertarian plus, right? You're a libertarian plus this other social thing, but solving homelessness um, is not a libertarian issue. That's a social issue beyond the scope of libertarianism, so you can be a libertarianism that wants to solve the homeless problem and you can be a libertarian uh, that doesn't care to solve the homeless problem and you're both libertarians. So I, could, I always consider these social aspects libertarian plus positions. Now, to your point about you know, Rothbard and the, you know, freedom not being uh, the, highest, uh, the highest value uh, or the highest principle, I may disagree with him on that only because, in my opinion, uh, I want to say that we got where we are because people valued things higher than freedom and liberty, right? Uh, the, you know, the, the, the Benjamin Franklin quote, you know, the, those who trade a little bit of security, temporary security for uh, loss of liberty deserve and will get neither, right? Or something to that effect. And I go like, well, people people have been trading away freedoms for any number of things for so long that it's nearly impossible to get those things back once the state has taken them,
2: right? And I think that part of it is that people often think that the government is is the way to provide those things. The great thing about the free market libertarian is that they're always providing nice, innovative, imaginative ways that free people pr- produce solutions far, far more effective than government solutions, you know, and positive. You yes. Know, yes. If you're going to help the homeless guy, um, make a productive society, give lots of opportunities, um, make things cost a lot less, make an abundance. Of, I mean, in the marketplace, you have an abundance of food, clothing, and shelter. And those are not so obvious direct solutions as a government taking money from one person and handing it to another. It's uh, the indirect uh, solution to all of those things which are real solutions right and so it's it yeah
1: so i'm i'm going to say something that ooh may be controversial uh even amongst you two here so feel free to correct me because i'm looking for a correction um with the with the rampant uh inflation going on along with the looming threat of some sort of military involvement um, I'm starting to care less about people on governmental assistance because the more they inflate the currency uh, the poorer the average person is present company included like myself included right and I go like well I know what I'm doing to stay above water and I'm a smart guy Right, I can't imagine those lower than me on that you know socio economic ladder getting priced out of the market, um, having having celebrities rub it in their faces, right? Having you know having politicians rub it in their faces, and I'm just going like, well, you know, if, if they're going if they're going to devalue the currency that much, you have to find ways to survive where you can. And if that ends up, you know, putting you on food stamps or some sort of welfare service in the short term because they've destroyed all the other options, um, I'm less vitriolic towards that at this point, right? When the Department of Energy goes like, well, you don't have to worry about gas prices because you should have just bought a Tesla. And Stephen Colbert is out there like, I don't care about $15 of gas because I drive a Tesla. I, wish, I can't afford fucking $15 a gallon in gas. Like that's.
2: That's or the Tesla
1: or Tesla or fucking Tesla, right?
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> so if they, no, I think you're right that the things like the two things, the inflation and war, are going to come down like a huge hammer on all of society in unexpected ways, and so yeah, it's going to be devastating, especially on the on the people um, with the lowest uh, lowest incomes and and the greatest. Uh, difficulty as it yeah. always is. I mean, if you're, um, wealthy and prosperous, you can find ways, um, to around the problems, but they have the least ability to do so. Yeah.
1: I, I, I think I was talking to a friend about this, um, or someone about this, maybe an angel. I don't remember at this point. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to think of the way I phrase I I think the way I phrase it was I care, I care less about people going on government assistance now. Um, because I'm less likely to be able to say that it was their fault that they're poor. Right. A lot of, you know, from the libertarian perspective, from the anarchist perspective, right. Poverty is the default state. And we go like, well, what did you do to bring yourself out of poverty? Right. If you're like, if you're 40 years old and you're working a minimum wage job, like you deserve that because you had plenty of opportunity to, to do better and make changes. Right. Like you're poor because of poor lifestyle choices uh, or a pattern of poor lifestyle choices that you've made throughout your life um, but but when they what did, how much did they print like thirty percent of the currency got printed in the last like two years or something
2: forty percent
1: forty percent so when that statistic comes out right it's a lot harder for me um, to levy that judgment on poor people because it's not your fault it's not their fault anymore right this this is absolutely um government induced poverty um that you know much like the headline of the, where they attack the the lowest income taxpayers the most right like they caused this and if you're you know if you weren't planning ahead or even if you were planning ahead right you know oh i've got iras and savings and you know whatever that much devaluation of the currency in such a short amount of time, right, it's hard for me to say, like, nope, you should have done something different. Because how could you have I, known?
2: I agree in part with you. I think, yes, these are, people have a right to live, a you know, an income-poor lifestyle as much as a high-income lifestyle. I mean, that's those are life choices that are all valid, you know, that that people can, be very, very ambitious or not so very ambitious in that sense. They're diff- ambitious in a different way to enjoy a peaceful life or uh, an aesthetic life. I mean, Henry David Thoreau is revered for having lived at the edge of Walden Pond for two years on $25. Uh, uh, it's an aesthetic life and it's just as valid as any other lifestyle. However, there's also this sort of Aesop's fable about the um, what is it? Uh, uh, the answer the, the grasshopper, ants? yeah. yeah that That you know that life is filled with lots of uncertainties, and so part of of um, wisdom in life is also being prepared for the um, the uncertainties, but government throws a lot more of uncertainties on the population than they deserve <laughs> i mean yeah the the prosperous society has protected has done a lot to protect us against floods and hurricanes and diseases and things like that. Uh, But the government just compounds it with their treatments.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, and again, you know, if, okay, fair, Um, how much, how much uncertainty from the government can you like reasonably plan for though? Right. Like, okay, you know, I'm, I make, I make $10 an hour, whatever, but I don't, I don't eat out. Right. I don't go out. I put away, you know, 10% of my paycheck into savings. Right. Just like they taught me. Right. You know, and then boom, like that's, that's worthless, uh, you know, or worth much less, uh, in a very short amount of time overnight say, right. Because it, it you know, if, if gas gets up to what they were, you know, what they are right, $15 a gallon, right. You just, you don't drive to work at that point. You don't, you just don't go right. Then you just, then you're eating away at your savings
2: yeah, I think we're at the beginning, very beginning of this in, inflation catastrophe. I think that uh, they say it's 7.9% overall, but I mean, I I, I expected, I would think it would double. I, I thought it would have doubled back in the last recession with all the money they were printing, but um, that didn't happen. At any anyway, rate, yeah, it, well, it will be much worse, and then we're going to, you know, there was a Great Depression. There may be a Great Depression again in the future, uh, and the wars that go along with that. That's what I was going to say. The, the wars, because then there's there's no there's no um, no safe place, no safe side to get on. I mean, I, it's going to hit you no matter I,
0: what. I think because the uh, invention of cryptocurrency, we're not going to have a uh, great depression again. Okay. So, oh, I w-
1: I want to hear that. Let me let me say one thing, and then I want I want you to elaborate on that point because the wars, I think, is what concerns me the most, especially when again I'm reading the news. And they're throwing out terms like uh, the petrol yuan, right? Like the, the, the dollar has been able to kick the, you know, they've been able to kick the can down the road with the dollar for decades uh, because that inflation always had the ability to get exported to other countries, right? Or a portion of it. So it didn't always hit uh, American citizens as hard as it would have if, if, you know, if, if the world wasn't trading in dollars, and so, if they switch over to the petrol yuan, right, and all of those foreign dollars return to the United States, right, then it exacerbates that inflationary aspect of it.
0: So, if, if cryptocurrency is the answer, please uh, explain, MC. <laughs> well, it's it's certainly not going to solve uh, all problems, but um, it will certainly lessen the blow. So, I don't I don't think it'll be as bad as it was uh people starving in the. US again um, so the reason for that is because uh, in the case that we have um, rapid inflation or or what you know what could have been seen as the cause of the Great Depression uh, rapid deflation um, well there's there's alternatives and so in in the case of rapid inflation you have Bitcoin uh, to hold your value and then in the case of Deflation you have any number of altcoins that are inflationary uh, to be able to trade with um, so there's basically no reason for people to stop working, stop producing, and lead to a, a situation where uh, there's starvation and and uh, prices that people cannot uh, obtain anything okay so it, it's certainly will hurt people. Not, not cryptocurrencies. The government's actions will, will hurt people that are slower to adapt to uh, you know, new new currencies and stuff like that. Um, but I think uh, when push comes to su- shove, they will. And um, so uh, the way I look at it is we, we live in a world of plenty and it's just a matter of people uh, acknowledging that and, and, and keep moving forward regardless of, uh, you know, what the government is telling them uh, their problems are. So.
1: Okay. I don't know if uh, I don't, uh, how do I put this? I don't know if stopping work is going to be the answer per se. Um, but I, at least for me personally, like there is a price of gas out there where I go like, it's going to cost me more to drive to work today than I'm going to make, you know, to put in the tank. So am I going to start taking public transit to work am I going to catch an uber no because those prices are going to go up too because they have to pay the same prices. so there there's a price there's 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 a there's a cost out there where I go like no I just my job isn't work from home I can't, I can't do my job from home I have to be there and if you know if the job doesn't pay more than it costs to fill up a tank and get there then the job disappears too because who's going to take that job
0: right Wait. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm saying, that, yeah, there's, there's certainly going to be yeah. uh, change, change for a lot of people, and they're going yeah. to have to adapt. But what so I, I just stop going what to work about, and
1: live off my savings, or put that into cryptocurrency in some form or fashion, and see how far I can stretch that before wages catch up, or you know, another job comes to pass that allows me to work from home or pays enough for me to afford that tank of gas.
0: True. Um, so. So further than that, uh you know we're we're talking about gas. Um the uh, re- the restriction there is is of course the 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 government not letting people produce uh oil in the US. So e- even if you know we can't get it from around the world because the prices are out of control, uh if yeah. restrictions eased up here then we'd have you know plenty. And that's what I'm trying to that's my main point is that there is plenty. Um and there has to be workarounds either through uh, you know, people deciding to trade with other currencies or uh, uh, you know, making deals, you know, even with, with the government, because you know, if, if we get into a situation where there is an actual great depression, then there's going to be market forces push, you know, pushing against the, the government regulations. Okay. And, and so the problem is, is if the government is this, solely in control of the monetary supply then that's a huge problem but if there's a monetary system outside of uh the government u.s dollar in, in the u.s then then there's a a way forward you know a, a, okay. a negotiation that can happen instead of you know the, instead of well basically what the government creates monopolies and so um outside of that then Uh, then we won't get to the worst-case scenario. Okay.
1: Are you saying that I might be worrying too much about this and I should?
0: No, I'm not saying that at all. I think it's going to get bad, but it's it's going to get not not as bad as it could be because there's alternatives.
1: Okay. All right. Fair enough. Final thoughts?
2: I'd like to ask about uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren's proposal to require for the government to require all cryptocurrencies to be labeled by who, you know, so there's no more anonymity with cryptocurrency. Uh, will that, how will that affect this situation with uh, cryptocurrency alternatives?
0: Um, I think we'll have to save that one for another time. Put put that on your prep list for next week, KS. Got it. All right.
1: That'll do it for us. We're at the end of this show. Uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody. You guys know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com, on Telegram, t.me slash anarchistexperience, or t.me slash experience. Thank you very much for listening. Oh, and if you'd like to contribute to the show financially, you can do so through Patreon, because that still exists. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Peace.
2: Aloha.